Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. G'day everyone, and welcome back to episode 2 of the Borneo Campaign. Uh, I remember way back when I thought I could cover the Borneo Campaign in one episode. They were golden days, dear listener, golden days. Then, as reality began to set in, I thought to myself, I thought, Self, this will take two episodes. But Self was wrong. Self was very wrong. It's going to take three. This time around, we're going to focus on the capture of North Borneo, which includes landings on Laborn and Muara Islands, the capture of Brunei, and the final operations around the northern end of North Borneo. We'll do Balakpapan and the final capture of Borneo next episode. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. Just before we start on this one, a warning up front. I mentioned a few different units throughout this episode, which can be a bit difficult to follow. I tried to keep it to just the main units involved because, trust me, if I started mentioning all the support units of artillery, engineers, logistics, etc., you'll very quickly lose track of what's what and who's where, just like I did when I was writing this episode. Now, hopefully, you won't get lost, but we'll see. If you remember, all the way back to the last episode, you'll remember that in the final months of the war, it was decided that the island of Borneo had to be taken from the Japanese. The first stage of the Borneo campaign, known as Oboe 1, was the attempt to take the island of Tarakan to capture the oilfields and the airfield. The airfield was intended for use in support of the main operations in Borneo, but the aerial bombardment and the artillery barrage in support of the Tarakan landings had caused so much damage to the airfield that it was unusable. By the end of May, Tarakan was in Allied hands and Oboe 6 was given the nod. The objective of Oboe 6, also known as the Battle of North Borneo, was to seize the islands of Laborn and Muara in the Bay of Brunei to clear the approach routes into the beaches and then to seize the mainland objectives. Australian troops have been operating in North Borneo since 1942. When the Japanese first seized the island, the population consisted of three main groups, the indigenous people known as the Dayaks, who live mainly in the hill country, Malays and Chinese. None of these groups were particularly friendly towards the Japanese, least of all the Chinese, but when they attempted to oppose the invasion, the Japanese suppressed them with their infamous brutality. So when operatives from the newly formed Z Special Unit lobbed in the area, they were warmly received and given plenty of assistance with their operations. Their main task was reconnaissance and observation of Japanese shipping and troop movements. Using only basic radio equipment, they radioed intelligence to Allied headquarters to try and provide some kind of advanced warning as to where the Japanese were likely to strike next. But whenever the opportunity presented itself, they also engaged in a bit of guerrilla warfare, generally harassing the enemy and making a nuisance of themselves. So when it came time for the landings, the Allies had a fair to reasonable idea of what they would be up against. The invasion was to be conducted by the 9th Australian Division's 20th and 24th Brigades. Initially, it was intended that Oboe 2, the landing of Balakpapan, would precede Oboe 6, but in the usual military manner of things, that plan was changed. Adding to the problems... In May, the troops who were supposed to conduct this operation were still in training in the Atherton Tablelands. 
the shipping required to transport the stores and equipment wouldn't be available until two days after the proposed landing date. MacArthur's headquarters were told about this, but they responded saying that the target date had to be adhered to. Now, if you'll recall from the last episode, at this point in the war, the Americans are on Japan's doorstep fighting at Okinawa. Why would it be so important that a landing be made in North Borneo on a fixed date, even if the equipment wasn't going to be available? To me, it reeks of a kind of, just do it, I've got more important things to worry about kind of attitude from MacArthur. Seems a bit dismissive of Australian lives to me, but anyway. Eventually, some concessions were made, reducing the number involved to only a brigade on Labourne Island and a battalion on Muara Island. The date for North Borneo was pushed back to the 10th of June. But the Balakpapan operation would continue on the set date, being 1st of July, reducing the time between the two operations. This was a problem. Some of the equipment used for landing and supporting the troops in North Borneo was also designated for Balakpapan. The troops were to be landed from two types of landing craft, LSTs and LCIs. Because of the limited number of craft available, each LST was crammed with 450 plus troops, while the smaller LCIs would take 180 to 190. Along with the troops were vehicles and ammunition, so they were packed in like sardines. During the rehearsals, the CO of the 2nd 28th Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel CHB Norman, wrote down what it was like on these vessels. I'll quote an unabridged version. LST 637 fully loaded had 488 troops. For these, there were two shower points, 12 wash basins and six latrines. About 400 of these troops were compelled to sleep under or on top of the vehicles on the troop deck. As the ship had taken on one jeep and a trailer and one two and a half ton GMC, shutout vehicles, in addition to the full load of vehicles, conditions of the deck had to be seen to be credited. According to the RMO's report, 90% were affected in some degree and some suffered severely. All officers complained of the worst headaches they had ever had and one or two, as well as a number of troops, had to receive medical attention for heat stroke. The troops returned to these overcrowded conditions where the only shade was that which they could get under vehicles or underground sheets they had erected over the hot iron deck. In almost six years of war, the right has never seen troops subjected to more deplorable conditions and on 10th of June, they were expected to carry out an assault. End quote. Pretty horrific, eh? Hot metal decks, everyone crowded in, ploughing their way through ocean waves with almost non-existent sanitary arrangements and insufficient water, and that's before they even faced an enemy soldier. There were 83 ships in the convoy, mostly American, but also included HMAS Hobart and Arunta. From the 7th to the 9th of June, Minesweepers worked in the channel between Labourne and Brunei and around Uara Island, clearing 69 mines. Meanwhile, combined air attack by US Air Force and RAAF laid on a heavy bombardment around the landing areas. The convoy arrived in the area and the cruisers added their weight of fire to complete the preparation for the infantry assault on the 10th. Commander of the 20th Brigade, Brigadier Windayer, identified Yellow Beach as the essential objective as it was the only safe, all-weather beach for landing equipment, but it wasn't a suitable beach for an assault landing. Yellow Beach was on the southern side of a narrow peninsula jutting out from the northeastern tip of Brunei, with the island of Muara just off the coast. There simply wasn't enough room between Yellow Beach and Muara for launching all the landing craft and to manoeuvre the supporting craft without crashing into each other. Windows plan was to launch simultaneous landings on Green Beach on the northern opposite side of the peninsula to Yellow Beach and on White Beach on Muara Island. The 2nd 17th Battalion would land on Green Beach while the 2nd 15th landed on White. After securing the beachheads, 
the 2nd 17th would advance across the peninsula and take Brookton, the main town overlooking Yellow Beach. The 2nd 15th were to advance towards Ledong Point, just across a narrow strait from Yellow. These two attacks would make Yellow Beach secure for the landing of heavy equipment and the force could advance on the main objective, the Brunei Township. On the 10th of June, the 2nd 17th landed on Green Beach, or more accurately, about a thousand yards away from Green Beach. It seems not much had changed since the 25th of April 1915, hey? Navy still unable to put troops ashore in the right spot. Just kidding. Sailors go all right. Unlike the landing at Gallipoli, this error made very little difference. There was no opposition on the beach, and the 2nd 17th moved inland. By the end of that first day, they had encountered and killed only five Japanese troops. Similarly, on Miwara Island, the 2nd 15th met no opposition at all on the entire island. By dusk, the 2nd 17th had moved a few miles towards Brunei. The 2nd 15th was in control of Miwara, and the 2nd 13th had been landed as a reserve force behind the 2nd 17th. During the night, a truck containing eight Japanese troops drove straight down the road towards the 2nd 17th perimeter, and the Australians opened fire, killing seven and capturing one. The prisoner told an interpreter that they had no idea the Australians had even landed. They'd heard the bombardment, but they hadn't thought any more of it. The 2nd 17th continued their advance the next day, cautiously moving through what seemed to be perfect offensive positions, but they were unoccupied. That's got to play havoc with the nerves, doesn't it? I mean, you're told this place is crawling with Japanese. Here's a perfect spot for those Japanese to spring an ambush, and all you can really do is keep moving forward, waiting for the shooting to start. But it doesn't. They did see one enemy soldier just before 4.30pm and wounded him, but that was about it. Along the way, the troops encountered civilians who seemed quite overjoyed that the Australians had finally arrived to free them from Japanese occupation. That morning, while the 2nd 17th commenced their advance, Wendo ordered a company of the 2nd 15th to take a landing craft up the Brunei River, and this was completed by 3pm. So by the end of day 2, the 2nd 17th had advanced further down the road towards Brunei, and a company of the 2nd 15th was landed about 4 miles south of the town, still with no serious opposition. Was it possible that the Japanese had simply abandoned this part of Borneo mainland? Surely not. The advance continued the following day, 12th of June. At the crossroad village of Seriusap, a small party of Japanese were seen off in the distance, too far away to engage, but they did pick up two Indian POWs. By 1pm, the airstrip was in Australian hands. This is where the only serious resistance was encountered. Japanese troops were dug into the hills just to the south of the airfield, and fired on the lead troops of the 2nd 17th. The leading platoon, under command of Lieutenant Kennedy, attacked one of the posts, killing the three occupants, while Lieutenant Trudgeon's platoon moved to the right through long grass, attacking other posts, killing a further 12 enemy. The Australians lost one killed and four wounded. The battalion dug in on the southern side of the airfield for the night, and throughout the night, Japanese kept up a machine gun and mortar fire, while small parties attempted to infiltrate the perimeter. In the early morning light, a group of 13 Japanese attacked across the airstrip and all were killed. The uncomfortable night at the airfield cost the Australians two killed and three wounded. Windayer ordered the advance to continue, with the 2nd 17th to move on Brunei town. Once secure, the main body of the 2nd 15th were to pass through and advance on Chitong on the northern coast of Brunei, while the company which had been landed south of the town the previous day would block any attempt by the Japanese to retreat. Opposition at this point had been pretty light, but that didn't mean it would continue that way. With nowhere left to go, the Japanese could well be determined to fight to the death. 
The day opened with an air attack on the Japanese positions, which had been hounding the 2nd 17 throughout the night, but when the infantry moved forward, they found the position abandoned. They continued down the road to Brunei, encountering only token resistance, and entered the town in the afternoon. A group of seven Japanese soldiers made a brave but hopeless charge and were all killed. A captured officer told Windale later that the air attack on the morning of the 13th had finally broken the morale of the defenders, who up to that point had resolved to fight on to the last. Before evening on that day, the Union Jack was raised over the former British governor's residence. In four days, the 2nd 17th had landed on an enemy coastline, marched 17 miles, killed 52 enemy and captured Brunei town. Not a bad effort. While the 20th Brigade was landing at Brunei, the 24th carried out their attack on Labourne Island. Labourne is a fairly large island sitting pretty much in the centre of the approaches to the Bay of Brunei. With the island in Japanese hands, they would pose a risk to any shipping heading towards Brunei if they weren't otherwise engaged. Brigadier Porter planned his landing for Brown Beach at the entrance to Labourne Harbour, pushed quickly into the airstrip, thereby securing the port for future operations. It was to be a three-phase operation. Phase 1 consisted of the 42nd 3rd Battalion and two troops of the 2nd 9th Armoured Regiment attacking on the right to capture the aircraft park. The 2nd 28th and one troop of tanks would go in on the left and capture Flagstaff Hill and Labourne Town. Porter wanted these objectives taken ASAP, and so, in an up-to-then untried tactic, he also landed artillery and mortars as part of the initial landings. In Phase 2, the 2nd 43rd Battalion would move on to capture the airstrip itself, while the 2nd 28th held a line between Government House and MacArthur Road, the main road leading out of Labourne Town. During the third phase, the 2nd 28th were to advance along MacArthur Road to a junction with Hamilton Road, while the 2nd 11th Commando Squadron landed on the western side of the harbour and secured positions there. The landings were carried out on 10th of June after heavy sea and air bombardment. As expected, there was no opposition at either landing. By 9.20am, the 2nd 43rd had its first three waves ashore and two troops of tanks. They moved forward rapidly, pushing their way past a stream of refugees. Two Japanese soldiers were hiding in a drain and opened fire as the Australians advanced, but they were soon dealt with and the 2nd 43rd moved on. Interestingly, this little scrap occurred just before MacArthur and Blamey rolled up with some correspondence to have a look at the scene. Now I've made no secret that I view this whole Borneo campaign as a waste of lives, but the fact that MacArthur took the time to go ashore on the first day of the Laborn attack may indicate that to him at least it was important. Maybe he should have spent a moment to tell everyone else why it was so important. Anyway, back to the task at hand. Later in the day, the 2nd 43rd did encounter some strong resistance, but they overcame that, and by the end of the first day, the airfield was in their hands. They had killed 23 Japanese, while suffering only 4 wounded. The 2nd 28th also landed without issues, and advanced towards Flagstaff Hill. They came under fire shortly after 10.45am from a position to the south of the hill. This was ignored, and Captain Lushington led his company forward, and the Union Jack was soon flying over Flagstaff Hill. Would have been nice to see an Aussie flag being raised, seeing as how there wasn't a pond within Kilby of the place, but so it was at the time. With Flagstaff Hill secured, the 2nd 28th embarked upon its second phase, securing the line to MacArthur Road. It was here that the Japanese resistance increased. A bridge over the canal had been partly demolished by the Japanese, and heavy fire was coming from the other side. Lieutenant Woodward led his platoon forward. When he and one section were nearly across, a volley of rifle fire erupted from the other side. Captain Eastman's company was following Woodward 
and they bore the brunt of the volley, losing five men killed. Private Parsonage was wounded on the bridge, and Corporal Shivers ran to assist, but found Parsonage couldn't be moved, and the sniper was making the position untenable. To escape the fire, he plunged into the canal and made his way back to report the situation to Captain Eastman. Parsonage was later found dead after being hit again by rifle fire. Private Walters was sent to lead another section to a position where it could launch a flanking attack. The section leader and three other men were hit, but Walters continued forward on his own, killing five Japanese and dispersing the rest. He was out of ammunition, but chased after the troops who were running away. He kept throwing grenades at them until he was wounded. After that, he called out directions to the platoon to help coordinate their attack. Two tanks were ordered forward to support the final attack on the post. Under their supporting fire, two platoons charged forward and hunted out the Japanese defenders. But having cleared this position, they now came under fire from positions to the front and left of Flagstaff Hill and were halted for the day. The following day, Porter ordered the 2nd 43rd to mop up their area between their boundary with the 2nd 28th and the coast, while the 2nd 28th were to advance their line to a point about a mile north of the airfield. He had intended for the 2nd 11th Commandos to land on the western edge of the harbour, but the natives in that area had advised that there were no enemy troops, so Porter only landed one troop of commandos and held the remainder in reserve. On the 11th, the 2nd 43rd carried out their orders meeting only light resistance, but again it was the 2nd 28th which encountered the main Japanese force. They moved forward along MacArthur Road, meeting sporadic fire which caused nine casualties, but by midday their left company had joined up with the 2nd 43rd but the right company was constantly losing communication with headquarters, indicating they were up against a strong, well-dug-in Japanese force. The far left company was subjected to heavy fire from a heavily wooded ridge and was unable to advance. B Company was ordered to push around behind the feature to relieve the pressure, which they managed, but it took the better part of the day, and so little further progress was made that day. By the 12th, it had become obvious to Porter that the Japanese weren't retreating across the island as he'd anticipated. Instead, they seemed to be withdrawing to an area which formed a natural stronghold. Rather than push his infantry into this formidable feature, he ordered both battalions to patrol around and secure the approaches while his armour and artillery were brought forward. The 2nd 43rd discovered that, except for one position, Hamilton Road was clear of enemy activity. They were ordered to push forward to the junction of Charlie Track, which the 2nd 11th Commandos were advancing along. By 5.40pm, the two units had met up and secured the road junction. An area that did contain Japanese troops was dealt with by C Company while the remainder of the battalion pushed on. There were several tracks leading up to the position, each of which the Japanese had blocked with disabled vehicles and booby traps. C Company was supported by a troop of tanks, but the tanks were confined to the tracks as the slopes were too steep. But, working together, the tanks and the infantry moved forward, clearing away individual posts while the engineers defused the traps and sealed the entrance to any tunnels. By the end of the day, the feature had been secured and any remaining Japanese had retreated back towards the stronghold. The 2nd 28th probed around the area just to the south of the 2nd 43rd and advanced about 500 yards along MacArthur Road where they came under heavy fire. The infantry was forced to ground but the tanks continued forward, unaware that they were leaving their infantry protection behind. Lieutenant Averne, realising he'd lost the infantry, got out of his tank to try and find them but was unable to and so he got back into his tank. His brief visit to the outside world did, however, let him see where the Japanese were, mainly due to the fact that they were doing their best at shooting. He moved forward with his two other tanks and was eventually able to make contact with the infantry. They sorted themselves out and were soon advancing again in tandem 
and by evening they had reached their objectives. By the end of a hard day's fighting, the Japanese stronghold was fairly well defined. It was about 1,200 yards by 600 and consisted of a tangle of ridges with thick trees and dense undergrowth. By this stage, the Australians had lost 18 killed and 42 wounded, nearly all from the 2nd 28th. But the fighting was about to get harder. The pocket, as it was now called, was going to be a tough nut to crack. On the afternoon of the 14th of June, a company of the 2nd 28th attacked the pocket after the artillery support had poured 250 rounds into it. Despite the barrage, the company came under heavy mortar and machine gun fire and was forced to ground. A flanking movement was attempted, but it too was held up by intense fire. The company withdrew. It was obvious the pocket wasn't going to be taken by a quick artillery barrage followed by an infantry assault. This was going to have to harken back to the old World War I tactic of an extended barrage to soften up the defensive positions. So, over the next five days, the 2nd 12th Field Regiment poured 140 tonnes of shells into the pocket. 140 tonnes. Hmm. Inside the pocket were three main areas of high ground. Eastman Spur, Lushington Ridge and Norman Ridge. Capturing Norman Ridge was the key to the whole pocket as it overlooked the entire area. There were only two real options for moving into these areas. One was along Lion Ridge, but it was heavily mined, and the other was along the Razorback Lushington Ridge, which led to Norman Ridge. The 2nd 11th Commando Squadron had probed the area during the 15th of June and were able to advise that Lion Ridge was suitable for the tanks, but it had a large bomb crater a short way up which would need to be filled in if the tanks were to progress any further. So on the 16th, Major Lyon, after whom the ridge was named, led a company from the 2nd 28th up the ridge with a troop of tanks. They commenced at around 8.45am. A bulldozer was escorted up to the crater and a platoon provided cover while the driver went to work. I can't imagine the dozer driver was feeling particularly comfortable about the working conditions, but there were no Union bosses to be seen, and so he worked on until the hole was filled. The advance then continued, and the first ridge was taken by 10.20am. Unfortunately, possession of that ridge brought them into view of posts on subsequent ridges, and the infantry were pinned down and one tank was disabled. A section from the 2nd 11th Commandos was ordered to move around the flank of the 2nd 28th Company, but during that move they came under heavy fire themselves, and two men were killed and the section commander, Lieutenant Sweet, was wounded. Corporal Garland took command and put the section into a defensive position. The tanks moved about another 150 yards forward of the infantry to try and neutralise the Japanese positions. They killed about 10 Japanese, but one tank was hit and its turret disabled, and another tank was bogged. They kept up supporting fire, but for the moment, forward movement wasn't an option. Throughout the day's fighting, there was one man who was in the thick of it, doing his job unarmed, helping the wounded when he could. He didn't have to be that far forward, because it wasn't in his job description. But he did it anyway, because he felt that's where he needed to be. His name was Padre W.E. Holt. Now, I'm not a religious man, but I do believe in giving credit where credit is due. And no doubt his presence would have provided comfort to the wounded, and he probably took time just to sit and have a chat to some diggers who were fighting hard, but probably needed a little bit of encouragement. Unfortunately, late in the day, while helping organise the withdrawal of the wounded, Padre Holt was killed. Courage doesn't only belong to those who carry guns. By shortly after 6pm, the forward company was relieved, having lost 5 killed and 23 wounded. Captain Eastman's company took over the position. It was decided that more softening up would be required before there was any chance of seizing the remaining positions in the pocket. For another two days, the artillery pounded the area. 
Even HMAS Shropshire got in on the act, shelling with its 8-inch guns. Over those two days, probing of the area continued and another 10 Japanese were killed. On the 20th, the bombardment kicked up a gear, with 1,400 shells and six bombers dropping the payloads on the area. Deeming the area sufficiently softened, two companies were ordered to attack the following day with tanks and flamethrowers in support. But overnight, the Japanese had one more surprise up their sleeves. Support troops stationed in Labourne town were awakened by the sound of gunfire within the town. It turned out that about 50 Japanese troops had sneaked out of the pocket, moved through the swamps and the jungle, and were now attacking the town. The engineers and logistics troops fought off the attackers over the following two hours, suffering three killed and eight wounded. The attackers lost 32 killed. It was probably a poor decision by the Japanese because they had depleted the force available to defend the remaining positions within the pocket, already reduced by the days of bombardment. The 2nd 28th companies, with the tanks and flamethrowers, known as frogs, attacked the following morning. It only took an hour and a half to finally capture the remainder of the pocket. The official report of this stage read, quote, The enemy offered little resistance and appeared completely dazed as a result of the softening up process. Any offensive spirit which he had left was quickly lost when the frogs commenced projecting streams of flame at medium machine gun positions. End quote. The Australians counted 389 dead Japanese and only captured 11 prisoners. It gives you a good indication of just how hard the Japanese fought. So, by the 16th, with Labourne, Uara and Brunei now secure, except for the pocket, which would take another couple of days, the final phase of the North Borneo operation could be undertaken. The 2nd 32nd Battalion, which had been held in reserve up to this point, was now to land on the mainland to the east of Labourne at a place called Weston, and push inland to Beaufort. A patrol from the 2nd 32nd landed at Weston on the 16th and met no opposition, so pushed forward about a thousand yards along the railway. It took a bit of an improvised organisation of shipping to get the rest of the 2nd 32nd across the water from Labourne to Weston, but they were successfully landed there on the 17th. Natives advised them that the Japanese had moved inland, and so the 2nd 32nd headed off towards Lincoln Gun. During the day, they encountered only one enemy soldier who ran at the first sight. The next day, Lieutenant Brown was leading his platoon beyond Lincoln Gun when he saw a movement to his front. He took a patrol forward and found 12 Japanese sitting on the railway line and in the ensuing fight, Brown was killed and two others wounded. Lieutenant Ackerley's platoon was nearby and entered the fight and with artillery and mortar support, the two platoons drove the enemy off. The area around Weston was now secure and the advance towards Beaufort could commence. There were two main approaches to Beaufort, up the railway or up the Pedas River. The railway option didn't appeal to Porter due to a number of sections passing between steep hills offering the defenders plenty of opportunities to ambush. More so because the only rolling stock he had available was one clapped out old engine and some flatbed carriages, hardly the kind of thing you'd want to be caught on in the middle of an ambush. And so that left the river, and why not? For the natives, it had been the main method of moving around for hundreds of years. It was a less direct route, meandering in a rough semicircle and coming into Beaufort from the west, but at least it didn't lend itself to sudden attacks. The 2nd 32nd were to travel upriver in LCMs in fighting patrols of around 100. Initially their task was to probe the route and the approaches to Beaufort to allow Porter to plan how he was going about seizing the town. While the 2nd 32nd were going about their business, the 2nd 43rd and the 2nd 11th Commandos were brought across from Labourne to clear the Clears Peninsula, a small projection across the water from Labourne. This secured all access points to the Bay of Brunei. 
There was very little opposition, and so the 2nd and 11th were ordered to continue along the coast to another peninsula to the north, while the 2nd and 43rd sent a party along the Cleus River to ascertain the possibility of moving towards Beaufort along that route. They were able to move barges up to a point where it was then practicable to advance a short distance overland to meet up with the Badass River and join with the 2nd 32nd. By the 25th of June, it was estimated that between 800 and 1,000 Japanese troops were positioned around Beaufort. The 2nd 32nd sent two companies to capture the railway terminus and the 2nd 43rd moved to the north of the railway. The first objectives were taken late on the 27th of June and the troops were ordered to push on and they advanced a further 2,000 yards before digging in for the night. The Japanese counterattacked, and Captain Glover's company was isolated. The following day, Captain Pollock took a platoon into the jungle to push through to Glover and came across well-dug-in Japanese troops. It was time for Private Starsevich to shine. A member of the company described Starsevich's actions, quote, Fired upon at once by 2nd LMG, Starsevich, standing in full view of the gunners, coolly charged his magazine and then advanced up this second post. Starsevich has a method of approach which in itself must be most disconcerting to an enemy. Firmly and confidently believing that he can never be hit, he walks into an enemy post preceded by a single and unbroken stream of pellets. He is quite unmoved by returning fire and stops only when the enemy has been annihilated. The enemy in this second post must have been quite unable to take it, for as Starsevich neared them they endeavoured to leave their foxholes and caught in Starsevich's fire, were all at once killed. End quote. Despite his efforts, the platoon was unable to reach Glover that day. The battalion commander ordered his other companies to withdraw a short distance to allow artillery and water fire to be directed at the Japanese. This bombardment finally broke the will of the defenders who tried to withdraw throughout the night, and small parties blundered their way into the Australian positions in the dark and were shot. Others slipped away, and by the following day, the 29th, the fighting was more or less over, except for some mopping up. The capture of Beaufort cost the Australians 7 killed and 38 wounded. All that was left now was to push on to the northernmost point of North Borneo, at Papar. The task was given to the 2nd 32nd, as they hadn't had the hard fighting that the 2nd that 28th had experienced on the Bourne, or the 2nd 43rd had experienced at Beaufort. The advance to Papar was largely unremarkable, and the only resistance received upon reaching the town were two Japanese troops with a machine gun. At the sight of the advancing Australians, they turned and ran. Mopping up was undertaken over the next few days across North Borneo, with contacts against small Japanese forces occurring most days. But soon enough, all the fighting came to an end, and North Borneo was secured. But as had happened at Tarakan, the departing Japanese had destroyed any oil wells they could before retreating, meaning that one of the main goals of the operation was lost. The other main objective, though, was achieved. They had pushed the Japanese out of North Borneo, and had made the area safe for the Daic tribesmen, who had been instrumental in assisting the commando since 1942. So at least that's something. The North Borneo operation killed an estimated 1,200 Japanese for the loss of 141 killed and 221 wounded Australians. So that's about it for episode 2. So far in the Borneo campaign, two major operations had been undertaken, Tarakan and North Borneo. Now all that was left was the main show, Balak Papin. And we'll see how that turned out the next episode. Catch you then. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. 
And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp.media at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Australian Military History Podcast. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.